Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guests this week are Chris Bragg and Travis Mashad from the music trailer company Ghost Rider Music. First of all, you might not have noticed, and maybe you don't even care, but TikTok is trying to make a move on YouTube. The way it's doing it is it's now testing video lengths up to five minutes long. Now, if you've been following this, you know that TikTok started in 15-second clips. That was the maximum. Then it went to 60 seconds, then to three minutes, and now we're up to five, or soon we'll be up to five. Now, the interesting part of this is the fact that Doyen, which is the TikTok equivalent in China, which is actually owned by the same company, they allow uploads up to 15 minutes. Now, here's why that's significant. On YouTube, the average video length is 11.7 minutes. For a music video, it's 6.8 minutes. I know, that's hard to believe since most music videos seem to be a lot shorter. The real interesting part here is that the YouTube videos that rank the highest, in other words, be on the first page of a search, they average 14.9 minutes. Now, you might think, well, wait a second, I'll just make a video. It's 14.9 minutes and I'll rank high. Well, it's not quite that easy because, of course, your video has to be interesting. If it's boring in any way, people are not going to make their way through it. Now, YouTube is also much different than TikTok in that it's the second most visited site on the Internet, first one being Google. Google, of course, owns YouTube. It's also the second biggest social site. So there's a lot going for YouTube that really can't be replicated, at least not yet, on TikTok. But I think the bigger question here is, will TikTok lose its magic with longer videos? Part of the real secret sauce is the fact that the videos were short. They were easy to consume. As you make them longer, then people are less likely to watch, or at least less likely to watch all the way through. So take a look at this because it might be significant in that there's been a lot of companies that have tried to take a run at YouTube and none have been successful yet. Will TikTok be the one? If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, if you use a lot of MIDI when you're composing then you might find this next item significant. Now, remember, MIDI originated back in 1983 as a way to network analog instruments. Up until then, there was no way for one analog instrument to talk to another. And that was a real drawback. So when MIDI came along, it was really fantastic for everybody. Problem is that you needed special hardware. Yes, every synthesizer, drum machine, whatever it might be, sequencer, they had to have MIDI inputs and outputs. Plus, you usually needed some sort of device in the middle that would allow everything to talk to everything else. It wasn't that long ago that MIDI over USB was introduced, and this kind of eliminated a lot of the hardware that you needed because all you had to do is 
take whatever gear you had, and if there was a USB port on it, then yes, it could do MIDI. But now we get yet another advancement, and it's called Web MIDI. Many think that this is the most significant MIDI advancement since the introduction of MIDI. This is going to work on all platforms with all devices, and the way it works is via a web browser. So basically, it doesn't matter what you're using, what computer you're using, what browser you're using, it doesn't matter. If your gear can connect to a computer, even if it's connected wirelessly, it can now be a MIDI instrument. Even better, there's no need to install new versions or updates, any of that. It's accessible virtually anywhere, and maybe even the best thing is even your smartphone can now be MIDI-enabled. So imagine how much you can do now with web MIDI. The only question I have about this, and I haven't used it yet myself, is what is the latency going to be like? Are we going to notice it? Is that going to be a deal breaker? We'll have to see as it rolls out, but look for more information on web MIDI. My guests this week are Chris Bragg and Travis Mashad from music trailer company Ghostwriter Music. Ghostwriter is the go-to source for trailers for feature films and television programming. The company's clients include Marvel, Disney, Sony, Paramount, 20th Century Studios, Lego, Warner Brothers, Universal Pictures, Amazon, Apple, and television channels FX, HBO, and Hulu and Netflix, among others. Chris has worked as a mastering engineer, producer, music supervisor, and sound designer before starting Ghostwriter. Travis, who's the company's CEO, worked as a sound editor, sound designer, music supervisor, and music producer before partnering up with Chris in 2017. During the interview, we spoke about how trailer music is different from film music, the mindset needed for creating trailer music, how a trailer gets put together, the fast turnaround time required, and much more. I spoke with Chris and Travis via Zoom. Before we get into Ghostwriter, and there's a lot I want to talk to you about that, let's talk about getting started in the music business. Chris, I know you have a very interesting background. Yeah, (laughs) a very busy background. Well, I read that you worked for Hans Zimmer and were a mastering engineer before you get into composition and sound design and everything so uh, what's the transition there so i guess i started my career in this industry at a place called ssi um, as a mastering engineer on movie trailers after that i went to work for hans i did a, a short stand at remote control and then after that i went to work with travis at cabin 21 oh okay travis how about you uh yeah i started uh in this industry i mean uh, Started as a runner, but uh, as an assistant editor uh, on the trailer side, we we did uh, uh, audio finishing for the trailer houses uh, that cut the the movie trailers. Um, and then uh, I got into supervising. Uh, I was a supervising mixer, uh, so I supervised uh, a lot of the mixes. That's how Chris and I met. Um, so I was on the mix stage most of most of the time uh, with Chris and the mix engineer. And uh, yeah, so that's how I got doing that. And then I did, did a lot of sound design um, for the trailers and did sound design for, you know, movies and television stuff also. And then, uh, yeah, and then we got hooked up together. And when Chris started Ghost Rider, I came along 
with him shortly after. Okay, well, let's talk about that for a second. I find it interesting that so many composers do sound design as well. And to me, it seems like a big leap. But I guess it's uh, an important asset or a necessary asset for someone that's doing trailer music, right? Yeah, yeah. especially in trailers. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of sound design in trailers. Um, and then on top of it, uh, especially in the production music world, uh, editors like to have the options of having the sound design already built into the music to kind of cut to big hits and whooshes and all that kind of stuff. So the typical trailer sound design. How long does it take to learn to do that? Because it's a different skill. Um, I mean, it was, for me, it took took years kind of just, uh, you know, listening, hearing what, what they were cutting in trailers, um, trying to, trying to you know, replicate what a lot of them were doing, a lot of these other sound designers, what how they were doing it, and just kind of mastering it out from that end. It was just more or less figuring out what sounds, you know, I could put together to make it sound like what they were doing. And then eventually when uh, when I was at Cabin and then when I started with Chris, I was just creating my own unique sound design. And Chris, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a bit of a musical background. Um, I grew up kind of playing in bands and and uh, I took piano lessons and stuff. But yeah, I mean, I, my, my journey kind of started the same way, just trying to kind of replicate what, what I saw on screen in these trailers that I was working on. Yeah, yeah so we, me and Chris was sit, sit all day long, you know, 15, 18 hours a day listening to the same trailer play over and over again and mm-hmm. isolating the music and listening to it being mixed on a theatrical stage. So it kind of gave us that advantage from being on that side. Yeah, we got to kind of see from the back what, what worked and what didn't um, when put up against picture. So that was, it kind of made our starting point a little bit further ahead than a lot of people, I think, that, that started out trying to compose for trailers and things like that being a composer and being a composer for trailers are two different things the approach has to be different how do you wrap your head around that yeah for for trailers it's generally the music for trailers you're building tension the entire time and never release because you want to leave you want to leave after the trailer thinking you didn't get finished like that's kind of what sells you what makes you want to go watch this movie is that you don't feel like it ever resolved in the trailer. So, so that's, that's a tool we use a lot in the music is never resolve anything. Always leave kind of on the edge, leave, leave it hanging. Yeah. And there's always been this combination of like, they want something that sounds familiar, but they're also looking for that unique sound that nobody's heard before. So that's kind of where the sound design comes into play. A lot of the times is how do we tweak these instruments to, create some sort of unique sound design element or unique musical element that makes people go like, whoa, that's, you know, it just kind of, I think what they want in the end is something something that everybody's like, oh, that's different than the last trailer I saw because ultimately trailers kind of all tend to be the same as they've opened up, they drive story, and then it's a big action montage at the back end, you know? So what musically can be different there to make people interested in it? Does the sound design go with the music or the picture? It's a combination of the two. Composers will create their own sound design, a part of the track, but editors also do a lot of sound design. So we have our own catalog of sound design elements that we push out to to the studios, 
and the editors will cut those individual pieces in based off of, you know, what's happening on screen. So they, they do a lot of their own kind of uh, layering of sound design along with the music. I know a lot of, well, not a lot, but I know a few sound designers that work on major tentpole movies. And one of the things for them is getting new sounds, which means going out in the field and recording everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a fun part of the job, yeah. Yeah, we do that a lot. We've kind of built up a a pretty pretty big catalog of kind of stock sounds over the years, so so we don't have to do it as much anymore to, to create. But, you know, we used to just, you know, go into the warehouse and smash stuff and, you know, hit stuff and just... Yeah. Get out there and record, you know, interesting sounds. Yeah, we bought we bought a siren. We have uh, all kinds of weird little trinkets <laughs> and stuff that we make sounds with, and yeah, that's definitely the the fun aspect of it. What's the most difficult sound you ran into trying to record? Uh, the jet engine thing was pretty interesting. We ended yeah. up getting a, a Dyson vacuum that was kind of partially clogged up, <laughs> and it had kind of a whistle to it. And then and we, we put a voltage regulator on it and turned it up really slowly, and it kind of sounded like a like a jet, you know, turbine. Yeah, engine. there's there's a lot of sounds where they they need something that's bigger than life, you know, like yeah, jet engines, something that we can't easily go out and record. So you have to, you know, there's a way to layer in stuff together that makes it feel that way. Um, mm-hmm. That's the, the the trick of doing sound design. Yeah, my my friend that I was just referring to went out and recorded a bunch of jets. And he went to an Air Force base somewhere. And they weren't flying specifically for him, but there was enough going on. But it still took him a week to get what he needed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, especially in the, in the future world or when they're doing tr- movies, actual movies, not just the trailers. It's, they spend a lot of time recording sounds for that sub stuff. You mentioned before about making the, the sounds and the music sound different than anything people have heard before which i take to mean you would probably be on top of any new synthesizer that was coming out yeah i mean chris and i have sat in the studio messed with the synthesizers and bending and tweaking sounds but yeah a lot of our composers um that's what we that's what we're looking for when we you know now we have upward of you know 25 plus composers that submit stuff to us all the time and um so we're always kind of looking for something unique in their style. Yeah, it's ultimately up to them and the composers on what they can do that's going to bring something different. Just like any in the music industry in general, there's a lot of people that sound similar, right? But for us is trying to pitch something to the studio when they're getting pitched hundreds and thousands of tracks all the time, you know, from other publishing companies, how do we stand out from the rest? So that's, you know, ultimately what we look for. A lot of the times it's just something unique, something different that we find. Okay, you just brought something up. So does that mean then that you hear about a movie that needs a trailer and you go pitch, or do you get the assignment? It's a combination uh, of the two. Um, we have custom producers that work specifically with the with the trailer houses that are cutting it, and they're like, hey, we specifically need this, you know, depending on if it's taking a a popular song and adding theatrical elements to it, or if it's something original. And then we also have our own catalog of music that we have our sales team that they, they pitch it. You know, we, we release an album every, every couple of weeks. 
Um, and then we also get clients that says, Hey, we need a batch of music that sounds something like this. And that's usually when we send them music, they're getting music from a bunch of different publishers. They're trying to sort through hundreds of tracks to find something for their trailer. So it's an ongoing process. Every week we're sending music out and pitching music for different stuff. Chris, tell me how Ghostwriter got started. It's an interesting question. I, I worked with Travis at Cabin 21. They kind of brought me on board um, to kind of head up that division that they had. They were pitching music and sound design. And I really became interested in doing custom music, which is, you know, the client comes and then we make it on the spot for them, like same day turnaround type thing. And I just kind of took that idea and ran with it with Ghostwriter. And that's kind of what I built the company on is that I can make any cue that they wanted within a day, which, which is pretty crazy. And we kind of got ourselves into that mess that we're in now, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, so, so now, uh, yeah, yeah, the turnaround times have grown increasingly shorter and shorter. And I, I guess we can take responsibility a little bit for that. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But yeah, that's how I, that's how it kind of got started. Is trailer music different for like, let's say games than for a TV show than for a feature film? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, I think for, for TV and features, they have some production music that they use, but then there's a lot of stuff that's just scored originally for that specific show or movie. And it's typically, you know, uh, just like any other song, it you know has its eaves and flows, and where tr- trailer music is pretty much starts here and it just ramps up as it goes, and so that's that's kind of the difference between trailer music and everything else. Essentially, is that trailer music is always just a building track. It starts at one and it hits at eleven by the end, and that's the, the majority of trailer music. But is the approach any different for a game like than for a film? Uh, like a video game? Yeah. I mean, video game trailers are the same as movie trailers, or at least they're getting there. Uh, but the in-game in music is, it's a little bit different because the scenes and stuff can be as more interactive than than mm-hmm. a, um, a movie, right? So as you're reacting with the, the game, the music can be changing as well. That's probably the, the more difficult part of making video game music is is the, the music can change on a on a dime if you decide to do something different. We don't typically do a lot of uh, video game music, so we're, we, we mostly do marketing. So you guys have been doing this for a while. Has trailer music changed at all, like from when you, when you started till the way it is now? Yeah, yeah, it changes. You know, in, in the early days, it was a lot of the, the dark covers were the big trend. So it was just a lot of like, dark female vocal cover cover songs that have theatrical elements kind of weaved in and then it kind of went away from that a little bit and now now the big thing is is overlays on on actual masters from you know 60s 70s 80s so so like you know these huge these huge tracks they send to us to kind of overlay theatrical elements on them yeah we cut them up we create intros for them we overlay it and make it just sound big and, and theatrical, like a big or- orchestra is playing along with Bob Dylan you know, or, some, or something of the sort. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
So that's that's the big trend now. I think that's probably what the majority of big trailers are. How about production? Has that changed at all? Yeah, production's changed a lot. There was a point in time where everything was getting recorded live because samples were just not what they are now. Using samples on a computer, especially with strings and brass and all that kind of stuff, just didn't sound up to par where now um, you'd be hard pressed, you know, if you have a good composer that knows how to use the samples properly, it's hard pressed to tell the difference between if that's a live recording or if it's uh, just straight out of the computer. That's the process now. That's, and that's how things have become so much quicker, the turnaround times, because we don't have to go and record stuff live anymore. We can just do it straight from the computer. What workstations are you using? To, which uh, DAWs are you using, just out of curiosity? There's kind of three big ones that most composers use these days. I use Pro Tools. People hate on Pro Tools a lot for composing, but that's, you know, coming from a post-production background, that's what I was trained on, and, you know, it's what I'm fastest in. So that's really what it comes down to is what what you're most efficient in using and you can keep the creative juices flowing better if you're if you know yeah. how, you know you know it inside and out. But the other two are um Cubase and uh Logic are the other two big ones that people use these days. I use Pro Tools because my primary focus is sound design. So tweaking audio in Pro Tools is is the easiest for me. Uh, yeah, I can see Logic in Cubase because of how they implement MIDI, yeah, which right, is yeah. much better than Pro Tools. It is, yeah. Yep. Out of curiosity, how big would a session be, a typical session in terms of tracks? I mean, it depends. It depends on the project. Like for a full orchestral thing, probably 30 to 40 tracks. Yeah, there's some composers that use more instruments than others. I have a composer that does a lot of uh, fantasy type music and whimsical stuff, and he uses a lot of different instruments. So he's upwards of 50 to 100 tracks sometimes, just the layers of different instruments. Okay, so your turnaround time is a day then, typically, or, or is it more? Yeah, depending on the project, yeah. But a lot of the times it's within a day. That means you're starting from scratch, and you're creating, and then you're mixing and delivering. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these things have, you know, a basic starting point that you can go from. So most of our composers and us ourselves have kind of templates built that we can start from that have kind of all the basic instrumentation that we know we're always going to be using every time. So it's already kind of there and preset and ready to go. And, you know, and you mix as you go. So that kind of takes that step out of the end. Yeah. And then our, uh, our custom producers, they, they have a pretty good grasp on what the client wants. So they lay it out for the composer. They say, okay, this is what we need for the beginning for the first minute. This is what we need for the middle section. And this is what we need for the back end. And they, they lay it out really, really well. Uh, so the composer, all he has to do is just create the track. He doesn't have to start thinking about exactly what he's, what he's making. Um, so it's kind of a, uh, we're kind of the middleman process in between the, the client and, and the composer. So what's the difference between Ghostwriter and Astral Music? So Ghostwriter focuses mostly on premium trailer music and custom uh, created music. Uh, Astral is our production music library and our artist's uh, label. So that's more, you know, film, TV. Yeah, we got, we have yeah. hip hop tracks. We have all kinds of like just underscore music, just every little, you know, every other kind of music besides trailer music. Yeah, and Ghost Rider is geared most, mostly towards trailers and yeah. video game advertising. 
stuff. How big is Ghost Rider now in terms of, of people? We got 10. There's 10, 10 of us on board here now in-house. And then out of house, we have probably pushing 40 freelancers that we use pretty regularly. It's pretty big. And how long? Like five years? Uh, yeah, 2015 is when when the company was formed, yeah. So when you started the company, I assume the already had work. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, my first year doing Ghostwriter, it was just me, and I was doing all the all the composing and kind of everything. And I think I worked on like 60 trailers or something like oh. that. So it was, you know, it's Burnout City. It's 24-7. <clears throat> I kind of decided at that point, like, I don't know if I can maintain <laughs> doing this by myself. So that's when I called Travis to come on board and we kind of restructured things a little bit. And yeah, and, when I came on, we focused more on building a company instead of it just being us doing the work ourselves. How often do you have clients sit in with you? Very rarely. Yeah. Uh, the clients are, you know, they're at the beck and call of the studios so they're kind of hopping all over the place. It's it's a it's a very fast moving process. So as we're creating the music, they're working on something else, uh, another trailer, or they're starting to like gather assets and cut in elements. So the the process moves so quickly. There's not really a lot of time for anybody to. Usually, the only time anybody sits in is when they're approving the picture, and then when they're finalizing the mix, is when you know anybody's sitting in. Okay, uh, I thought that your client was the studio, but I guess not. There's somebody in between then. Yeah, so there's uh, there's companies uh, that specifically cut trailers, mm. movie trailers. So uh, the studios have they have their own in-house people, but not they're relatively small. But then there's yeah, there's companies just like us that cut trailers specifically for movie movie trailers, and so they get the directive from the from the studio and then you know there could be two or three or four or five trailer houses competing for one trailer and so they're all cutting a trailer to compete against it and then we get a couple of those houses that ask for music and so we're competing against it so it's it's a very competitive industry to say the least it sounds pretty nerve-wracking because thinking about the production and getting it turned around quickly but also what your competition is doing as well yeah and, uh, and then we're, all of our work is on spec, so we don't get paid unless our project is the one that finishes. So that's why we try to, you know, we're trying to build a company. We try to get as much work in as possible and take on. And we use a lot of the same composers, so they have the most opportunities to, to finish their projects. And um, our, The people that we work with work really hard, so we're fortunate for that. What is one thing that, People don't know about what you do that you wish they knew. I mean, a lot of a lot of the times when I tell people, you know, we work on trailer music, they're like, "Oh, I thought I thought they just used music from the movie." Yeah. So a lot of people don't even know that. Like, it's it's its own kind of industry. And I think that's probably usually the biggest thing is people just don't. They just figured that it was music that was in the movie. For each of you, which project did you work on that was the most fun? Uh, one of my favorite projects is when when I first started with Chris was um, we got tasked to do the sound design for the IMAX intro of Blade Runner. So you know they had those like kind of three D you know zoom into the movie theater, but it was all Blade Runner themed, and mm. 
they the one where they're on the roller coaster going through yeah. the popcorn and yeah yeah so it was uh so they said hey you know we got this thing we need to finish it this weekend you know it was on a friday night and so chris and i just worked all night and we did all the sound design and the music but all kind of blade runner-esque stuff and and cut it it was it, that was probably that was probably one of the the coolest projects i think we worked on it was just kind of very hands-on and uh, we actually got to work with picture, which usually we don't. We we don't ever get picture from the studios. Really? Yeah. I mean, most of our stuff is even before they start cutting the trailers. So, wow. They cut the trailers to the to the music or somewhat of the sort. So, so we don't ever usually get picture. I'm even more impressed now. I always thought you cut the picture, and you can tell where the peaks are, so you you, you compose to it. Yeah, we just kind of, we write in a formula that that's kind of a general, you know, three part structure. And then, and then they, they cut to, to the music. I mean, they'll, they'll chop our music up too. It's, you know, a lot of the times by the end of it, it's not what, what it's, yeah, they'll, they'll chop they'll the music up. and they'll chop stuff out and they'll, they'll cut it up. And yeah. And then they'll send it back to us and say, Hey, this is what we did. Can you fix these parts and mm-hmm. we'll fix it and send it back. And it's just back and forth from there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what Chris's favorite project is, but that was one of mine for sure. Chris, favorite project? Probably the first big finish that I had when I started Ghost Rider, which was X-Men Apocalypse. That was that was kind of the point when I finished that trailer. I was like, oh, I guess, I guess, you know, I guess I could do this. This is gonna happen. So that was that was probably, yeah, that's probably it for me. Okay, last question, guys. What's the best piece of business advice that you've received from somebody or maybe learned along the way? The best piece of advice that I ever got was to never run a company on debt. And that advice proved to be the most valuable piece of advice I ever got after you know, COVID happened. All the work stopped. I mean, the work kept going, but all the payments stopped for almost you know, almost a year. So because we didn't have any debt to service, we kind of made it through that and came out the other side still very healthy. So that was probably the best piece of advice that I ever got. Hmm. Travis, how about you? I've been working with a lot of small companies along the way. And I think what I've learned is that if you, if you do something, if you make a mistake or if you, you know, make a bad hire or somebody just doesn't you know, does, isn't working out no matter if they're an awesome person or not, is just not to hang on things. It's just business to move on, to do what's right for the company as a whole, because it's not just you and it's not just them. It's, you know, we're, we're giving paychecks to, you know, 10 people, you know, and so don't hang on things just for a personal reason. You know, you got to just keep moving forward as a company. You know, if that means having to let someone go or make a change, or if we have to move, like we moved to Nashville, it's just, we always just look at it as the company as a whole, and this is what we're doing for the greater good of the company. You can find out more about Chris, Travis, and Ghostwriter Music at ghostwritermusic.com. That's ghost, G-H-O-S-T, writer, W-R-I-T-E-R, music, ghostwritermusic, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, Go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyownercircle.com where you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, 
TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, I'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.